Hello. Hi, Catherine. How you doing? I'm okay. How are you? Uh, I'm okay. I've discovered like a life hack. Oh, no. <laughs> what is your life hack? So I am ashamed to admit that I don't read books very often. I mean, I've read books. Trust me. I've definitely read books. But, you know, people in recent weeks have been sharing all of these wonderful resources and books you can read to sort of engage with the moment and learn more about the history of what's going on right now and, you know, policy solutions and everything. And I'm like, you know, how am I ever? It'll take me a lifetime at the rate I go. So this is the life hack I discovered. Audiobooks on double speed. <sighs> it's like you haven't been listening to me for years <laughs> that I've been evangelizing audiobooks. <clears throat> it actually reminded me, listening on double speed actually reminds me, so I watched The Matrix recently, and they have these um, scenes where they basically like download programs into the people's brains, you know? i never seen it. You've never seen The Matrix? No. Oh my god. Well, okay. They can upload programs into their brains, and they like sort of kind of shake and are like, whoa, and then they all of a sudden know all this stuff. Why does it make them shake? Well, I imagine learning that inf much information in that short amount of time must be a very intense experience. Anyway. Yeah, I'm sure it stimulates some of your motor neurons. Right. So... The point is, listening to audiobooks on double speed is kind of like that. Okay. It's just like you just, like, get all of the information really quickly. So, the point is, I absolutely mainlined a book. I read The End of Policing by Alex Vitale. Some of it is the history of policing, was which is really fascinating. He talks about the funding for police. You know, you've been talking a lot about sort of the underfunding of, say, parks departments or health departments and how our lack of investment in basic health care and prevention results in a lot of our public health problems. And he talks about this in this book. So um, we got to talk to him. Yeah. This, I'm just going to lay the groundwork for our conversation with him. Amazing producer Alvin Mellis pulled some statistics for us about city and state budgets. Um, oh, great. Let's double speed this. <laughs> Here's some facts. About half of state revenues come from sales tax. And and we know that because of the pandemic uh, and all of these closures, state revenues are way down. Um, state and city governments typically have to have balanced budgets. They're, they're going to have to yeah. find a lot of stuff to cut. Um, like a pre-FDR federal government. Correct. I guess. So the thing that almost never gets cut in uh, moments like these is police budgets. Police budgets are massive. So here are some examples. A lot of these are proposed budgets. So just keep that in mind. Oakland, as an example. The Oakland Police Department re receives nearly half of the city's discretionary spending. That is more than human services, parks and recreation, and transportation combined. Minneapolis, where George Floyd was killed, passed its budget in December, and it increased its budget for police by $10 million. So they have now have a total of $193 million. Here, here's what they're spending on other things. $31 million for affordable housing, $250,000 for community organizations working with at-risk youth, $400,000 for the Office of Crime Prevention. 
I did not realize the disparities were that drastic. So last one I'm going to say is New York City, where we live. We have the biggest police budget in the country. And in this record year of record shortfalls, they are cutting the police department by 0.39%. The NYPD budget is $6 billion. Anyway, they're cutting it by a tiny sliver, whereas uh, the Department of Youth and Community Development which funds after-school programs, literacy services, and youth, summer youth work programs, is losing 32% of its budget. So hmm. anyway, this is all to say police get a ton of money, and are, their budgets aren't really being cut, it seems, very much across the country um, in response to these record budget crises. But what is getting cut is a lot of other things that I know are favorites of, of yours, like... Um, parks departments and after-school programs and stuff like that. So this is something I, I want to understand. And I think Alex Vitale can help us do that. Yeah, I hope he has answers. Hello. 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 Hi, this is Catherine. Hi, it's Alex. Hi, Alex. This is Jim. Thanks for making time for us. Of course. How are you doing? Uh, okay. Not getting much sleep. Working hard. Yeah. Yeah. Doing about 10, 12 interviews a day. Wow. That, that, I assume that's more than normal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, then people have probably heard, our audience has probably heard of you, but in case they haven't, could you introduce yourself for them? Sure. Uh, my name's Alex Vitale. I'm professor of sociology and coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College. And I'm the author most recently of the book, The End of Policing. And I've spent about the last 30 years working on policing issues domestically and internationally and consult both police departments and human rights organizations. And how did you get into this work? Well, 30 years ago, I was working at the San Francisco Coalition on Homelessness doing primarily housing and economic development policy, which is really what I had studied primarily. But at that time, the city of San Francisco ramped up its criminalization of homeless folks. And what became clear to me pretty quickly was that the city had given up on the idea that they were going to actually house people and instead decided to turn the problem over to the police to manage. And this was a real wake-up call to me about the relationship between policing and broader social policy questions. And ever since then, I've been deeply skeptical about any situation where we come to rely on policing when there might be a better alternative. Yeah. So I, um, I read your book, and you talk about how we've basically just, you know, over the decades, we've just put more and more issues on police to solve that used to be taken care of by other agencies or organizations. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Over the last 40 years, we've, we've seen policing extend into more and more areas of daily life, especially the lives of, of, of the poorest folks in our society. After deinstitutionalization of the state hospital systems, uh, instead of spending money on community-based mental health services, they you know, handed out some pills and left people on their own. And then when people develop problems that 
were perceived as public order or crime matters, you know, the problem was turned over to the police to manage. We've got this massive opioid crisis, and there's still no real place in the United States that has medicalized drug treatment on demand. But every part of the country has policing on demand. And this represents a set of political priorities of trying to solve problems through criminalization rather than actually addressing market failures of labor markets and housing markets and healthcare markets, et cetera, that, that could actually bring some relief to people. You mentioned harm reduction. That's something that still some people debate it, but it's the idea that you can do something like a safe injection facility and to allow that some people are going to use drugs, so it should be done in the safest possible way. Um, other people think that it should just be outright banned. Um, I think there's some analogy here of what's happening in this in just the last couple of days with with protesting and how much different places are trying to just kind of clamp down and impose extreme curfews and put more and more police out there and arrest more and more people. 10,000 people have been arrested now in response to these two, two protests versus uh, more of a harm reduction approach, which would be to help make protests uh, as safe as possible. That's right. I mean, we can see this last night, a tale of two cities. In, in San Francisco, there was a zero-tolerance attitude about the curfew, and folks who were resisting it were immediately subjected to arrest and use of force. But in Oakland, across the bay, the police took a very different attitude. Their view was, as long as the protests remain peaceful, we're happy to just facilitate it. It's not really a threat to public order if people are not, you know, breaking into things and committing acts of violence. So let's try to preserve the peaceful character of this rather than having it devolve into tear gas and street fighting. Did it work? It did. The situation in Oakland was great. People stayed out very late into the night dancing in the streets. Oh, no. Well, I've heard what dancing does in terms of moral corruption. <laughs> Very dangerous. Um, so your book is called The End of Policing. What's its central argument, would you say? The central argument is that policing is an inherently problematic tool for the state. Policing is a tool of violence that has historically been used to facilitate gross inequalities and systems of exploitation like slavery and colonialism the breaking of unions, the suppression of workers' rights movements. And so then to say that that tool is best suited to solve a broad range of community problems is misguided. And further, that we can fix that problem with a series of superficial procedural reforms really misunderstands the nature of that institution and the missions that our elected officials have given to it. What are the superficial procedural reforms that you're talking about that haven't worked? So, you know, Minneapolis was really kind of a shining star. They adopted this whole set of recommendations that were included in Obama's task force on 21st century policing. Things like implicit bias training. Right. That assumes that the problems of race and policing in the United States are about unconscious, unintentional, individual discretionary decision-making by officers. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, this is just mm-hmm. ludicrous. First of all, we have a problem of explicit racism in American policing. Mm-hmm. And also the decision to turn the problems of poor communities of color over to the police to manage inherently reproduces racially disparate outcomes and reproduces racial inequality in the United States. The racism is baked into the institutional mission set by our political leaders, including President Obama. So this reform cannot possibly give us any relief. Neither can having police community encounter sessions, which they did in Minneapolis, or instituting you know, sort of accountability mechanisms that were largely procedural in nature, body cameras, new use of force policies, uh, de-escalation training. There's absolutely no empirical evidence that this makes any more than a superficial difference in the way policing is conducted. So this is, I think, part of the reason that the frustration has been so great this last week is that we were sold this bill of goods five years ago. Mm-hmm. We were told, don't worry, we know these killings look terrible, but we're going to restore your trust in police by having an encounter session between police and the public to talk about how bad racism is. Yeah. Right. So we're in this time where uh, state and local budgets across the country are in complete trouble, and yep. they're having to cut things left and right, and it's seems like one thing that is not getting cut in general are police departments. That is true. So in New York, they want to cut the education department by over $600 million, but the proposal for the police department is a cut of $23 million. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's after the police department budget has increased by about $1.5 billion in the last six or seven years. I don't... I, I mean... I'm not I'm no economist. <laughs> and to me a million dollars and a billion dollars like it's all just a lot. But <laughs> it's just a lot of zeros. <laughs> it's just like more than I can think about. <laughs> like it's just a lot of money. But the police department's budget is 6 billion dollars? That's correct. That's correct. More than the Department of Health, the Department of Homeless Services, the Department of Youth Services, the Department of Employment Services combined. I mean, it's more than the World Health Organization. It's larger than the GDP of 50 countries around the world. (laughs) So we must be really, really safe then. (laughs) (laughs) I feel better already. I, so, yeah, I don't mean to be naive. Why does that feel surprising to me? Well, it's, it's been a slow process and it's been masked in this language about, you know, the need to keep a lid on crime. And, you know, part of what drove this expansion was the 94 crime bill championed by the Clinton administration and then Senator Biden that created billions of dollars of subsidies to hire local police and to put police in schools and to create tougher penalties for drug crimes. So this has been a long-term process, but generally we've seen this expansion of policing incrementally going on kind of under the radar. Mm -hmm. So you just get used to it. You're like, well, of course police are everywhere and this is how we solve problems. Well, that's what communities have been told, right? That the only resource they can have to solve their problems is more police. 
And so, of course, communities have adjusted to this so that when there is a problem, they demand more police because they've kind of given up on the possibility of getting the things that they would really like to have because there's never there's no opportunity to get those things. And, right. and it's my hope that this current moment will change that calculation in some way. Yeah, that is my question is there's a lot of political power and right now around all these protests the national attention has been won is there their demands about defunding police kind of generally that seems like a far cry from where we are are there kind of concrete things that people are asking for or you think uh, like attainably should be asked for in this moment you know there's kind of a continuum for understanding what defund the police means. And it doesn't really mean tomorrow the police budget is zero. There are actually dozens of campaigns that were underway before the events in Minneapolis that were calling for defunding policing. But it took the form of things like, we wanna halt new hiring, we wanna get a handle on overtime, and we wanna close down certain problematic programs like the gang unit and shift those resources into community needs. So this is not about tomorrow there are no police. Yeah, There are folks, though, for whom defund, defund the police is also about thinking about a bigger vision of a kind of world where, that we could have where we don't rely so heavily on, on policing and prisons. And that comes out of the the prison and police abolition movement that's that's emerged over the last 20 so years. Yeah. You described trivial reforms like tr in like inherent bias training where maybe people have to watch a a YouTube video for 90 minutes and then they're no longer racist. It, it, would a department foreseeably be like, well, we're going to, we lost some money, so we're going to cut our implicit bias training and we're going to cut some other things which uh, you made us do before. And it actually doesn't solve the problem? Yeah. So cutting some of these training things would be a great place to start. And unfortunately, one of the things we're going to see is they're going to ask for more training, right? They're going to trot out the same idea that the problem is, you know, we don't have enough money for training. We need more resources for policing, more professionalization. So they're going to want to increase police budgets. And the argument of the defund folks is that that stuff doesn't work. It papers over the real problems. And what we have to do instead is redirect those resources into more positive interventions. Right. The American Society of Public Health uh, about two years ago voted on a position that said that the way policing is conducted in the United States is a public health problem, that police violence is a public health problem that 8% of all homicides in the United States are committed by police, and that the solution to this is not more training. It is reducing our reliance on policing. Gotcha. Well, so you think that there's no role for this sort of education training program. It's just like if you're not already aware of these biases and a good person, you're not going to learn it within the force or within uh, a training intervention. You know, some of the research shows that Officer behavior gets worse after these anti-bias trainings. Oh, like they resent it? Exactly. They resent yeah. it. And not unreasonably, because it's ludicrous. This, this rests on research. 
that shows that when you put people like in front of a screen and you show them different images and you give them little buttons to push, that in the aggregate of large numbers of people, that people will express a kind of preference for lighter skin faces over darker skin faces in different kinds of scenarios. Mm -hmm. But this research is very questionable because they have never been able to reproduce it at the individual level. It only plays out at the at, at the aggregate level. Mm-hmm. Also, they've never been able to show any connection between how you score on this test and actual behavior, either in right. a laboratory setting or in the real world. So yes, you do consistently get these aggregate results, but it does not, they can't link it to behavior. Yeah. Right. So we've built like a massive HR training apparatus based on a study that we don't even actually know what it shows. Exactly. That's right. And then there's even less research to support the idea that the training itself makes any difference. They have absolutely no results to point to that says that after, whether in a workplace or for police, that behavior gets better. Right. This is political cover. This is about enabling the expansion of policing It's about enabling the racially disparate outcomes and providing political cover for police chiefs and mayors. And that's why they agree to do it because it doesn't actually change anything. It just is something they can say they did in the heat of a moment of protest. It just diverts our attention from the real problem. Like vitamins. (laughs) (laughs) I took a a multivitamin this morning. I keep telling her not to. Jacques Hughes. (laughs) Um, anyway um so i imagine you get just tons of pushback so i'm gonna ask you about counter arguments i mean there are examples of places that have made cuts to their police departments for example several cities after the 2008 recession and it doesn't necessarily seem like that that public safety was all of a sudden fixed, you know, or better. Minneapolis, you're saying, has done a lot of uh, these programs uh, that you're saying are ineffective, but it also funds public works more than it does police. So it, it seems like even their budget might be in the direction of the of the distribution you're talking about. So we know that funding them doesn't work, but how do we know that defunding them would work? Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. First of all, Minneapolis does spend a huge amount of its budget. When you combine policing and jail services, it's over half the municipal budget. So it is a huge expenditure. The other thing is, is that just defunding the police by itself is almost never what people are calling for. What they're calling for is a redistribution of resources because communities do have problems. They have problems of violence. They have problems of disorder. They need help, but they don't need help from the police in many of these cases, right? So it's got to be about redistribution, not just defunding. And it needs to be targeted and specific. So when you ask about, you know, counter arguments, you know, you hear sometimes people say, well, there's a little bit of evidence that if we tweak a use of force policy, we get a 6% reduction in, you know, official use of force forms getting filed. And I'm like, okay, maybe, 
but that's a very small effect that refuses to address any of these larger questions and does not include you know all the collateral consequences of continuing to rely on policing the financial costs the social costs the mass incarceration when are we going to factor that into these equations about effectiveness are there any examples where defunding the police works and what does that look like how do we imagine what a less policed country looks like and don't say the netherlands because that's well, everyone's answer to nope, every problem i'm not going to i'm going i'm not going to i'm gonna i'll start with i'll start with though with portugal if you okay. don't mind is that is that country acceptable to you Jim? no i just no i hear you just like i don't want to talk about midnight basketball either right we we want to be specific and we want to be evidence-based sure. mm -hmm. so portugal has decriminalized all drugs, largely removing police from the drug business. And it has been a success. Even the Portuguese police travel around the world trying to convince other people to do this. They've turned it over to public health services. HIV infection rates have fallen, overdoses have fallen, and civilization has not collapsed. In Europe, no one has ever heard of school policing. The idea of filling schools with police seems insane to them. If you just talk to anyone in Europe, they're like, what? Yeah. The scope of the reform you're talking about now, um, this is not something that's going to happen on a single single line item or um, you know, measure. You need, you're talking about a reconceptualization of how we operate as a society. Um, how in this moment, do we use some of the principles that you have studied and argue for to, to break out in this acute situation, to break out of that escalation of ramping up more and more force to handle more and more protests? Well, the first thing is that decision to turn it into a policing problem is a kind of political failure. And we have to call that out. We have to say that these curfews, these zero tolerance policing postures are about politicians trying to avoid responsibility for fixing this problem. And that means that we have to shift some of the discourse from a conversation about police accountability to a conversation about political accountability. And I often say actually about the book that in many ways, I think it's a book that's more about political accountability than it is police accountability. Right. So speaking of your book, you've been studying these issues for a long time, and now you're doing 10 to 12 interviews a day. What is it like for you to watch your ideas be so incredibly relevant and have such traction right now? It's like the, the world's like dozen coronavirus researchers suddenly became really central to the global conversation in the last few weeks. And they're like, people, we've been here. Yes. <laughs> my 12-year-old uh, yelled at me on my way to go do this interview that her classmates were talking about the fact that some supermodel with close to 30 million followers on Instagram was posting about my book. Oh, wow. 
So I, you are big on Instagram. I've seen multiple Instagram posts about your book. I don't follow I, any I, supermodels. I'm se, not. But. I have never been able to manage Instagram. I have no, an account I mean with like no followers. <laughs> it is, of course, it's it's gratifying, right? But I have a certain kind of privileged position, which is, you know, I have a job that allows me to do long form writing and research. Mm-hmm and kind of deep reflection about these things. And I try to use that to assist these movements in productive ways. And also I feel some accountability to those movements so that right. if I get feedback from them, you know, I take that seriously and I try to use my position to pass resources on to folks. Um, do you think this is going to happen? Any of the changes you've, you've talked about? I mean, I'm actively involved, you know, in, in these struggles. And, and so, you know, I have skin in the game here. And I think we, we are seeing victories. I mean, uh, the Los Angeles mayor just announced he's going to cut at least $100 million out of the police budget in response to what's going on. The Minneapolis School Board just severed its relationship with the Minneapolis Police Department and is ousting their officers from school policing duties. The 200 members of New York City Mayor de Blasio's staff wrote a public letter demanding that he cut a billion dollars out of the NYPD budget. So there's going to be a dance. We're not going to win everything in one budget cycle, but we're establishing a logic, a legitimacy to these ideas. Our movements are growing. Our experiments and examples of alternatives are increasing. And so, you know, at least at the local level, I'm fairly optimistic about the direction of things. Well, um, I appreciate that optimism and I appreciate you uh, taking the time to yeah, talk to us. And um, I'm going to follow you on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> I will, I will try to get more active uh, there. I really need to. Listen, and I, not to pressure you, you know, but but I'll be watching. <laughs> yes, yes, on the gram. On the, on the gram, as they say. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, good luck with your uh, 11 other interviews yeah. today. You're welcome. Okay, Thank take you. care. Bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Well, all right. Well, I learned a lot today. Yeah, yeah. Man, uh, when when we started this podcast, I didn't imagine this would be our topic of conversation, but we are following where this story of the pandemic naturally leads, right? Yep. We still need to get to those mottos for about cleaning yourself, but it's been a it's been a serious week, so maybe that is um Right. Everyone who wrote in, we've been enjoying them, and we're going to talk about them. Yeah, the uh, debate continues between us. It is heated, and it is not friendly or professional. (laughs) Yeah, so hold on to your hats. All right. The show was produced today by Alvin Melleth. Please write us at socialdistance@theatlantic.com or call us at 202-642-6487. Please subscribe to The Atlantic. Have a good weekend. All right, you too.